Welcome to the Rust Belt Rundown, brought to you by Rust Belt Recruiting. This podcast is designed to shine a light on the meaningful work being done in Northeast Ohio and the surrounding region. We will convene manufacturing executives and Northeast Ohio business leaders for candid discussions about their business, regional happenings, industry trends, entrepreneurship, and more. Now, let's get running on the rundown. Welcome, everyone, to episode 60 of the Rust Belt Rundown, a production by Workforce LLC. I am your host, Paul O'Connor, and on this episode, we are joined by Shannon Lee of Leadership Columbus. Shannon, people are saying happy Friday Eve. I'll go with that. Thanks for being on the podcast. You're welcome. I like to call it Little Friday. That's Little what I call Friday. Thursday. Yeah, yeah I, like that. I like that, too. That's got a good, yeah. it's got a good energy to it. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Thanks um, for having me. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's Little Friday is nice, especially when you have Summer Fridays, which Bessa does. <laughs> so we, uh, it doesn't always, I don't always end at noon. As a matter of fact, rarely do I end at noon, but it's nice to have that on the calendar anyway. So, yeah. um, all right, let's jump into it. Shannon, um, you've been uh, at Leadership Columbus for a little over two years now. For the people that don't know, you know, this is an Ohio-based uh, podcast. So, you know, people in Cincinnati or Cleveland or Dayton or wherever may not know. Give us the quick rundown for uh, the listeners that are not familiar with what Leadership Columbus does. Yeah, so Leadership Columbus, generally speaking, is considered a CLP. What that stands for is Community Leadership Program. And we've existed as a community leadership program because of our flagship program, the Signature Program. Now, we have much more than that going on now. Uh, but that is essentially the category that we are in. And what that means is we conduct programming uh, through the signature program that helps community members become more civically engaged in the Columbus community. Think of it as like a deep dive into Columbus. And so we've been doing that for almost 50 years. In the last two and a half years, however, we've expanded that programming to include more traditional leadership development around leadership skills and relational skills, those things that are needed to be effective leaders of self and leaders of others. And um, that runs the continuum of programming that starts at high school. So we have a leadership program for high school students. And then we have on the other end of that spectrum, we have a program for folks that are trying to be prepared for maybe that first senior executive role that program is called Executive Edge. And so, and then we have programming all in between there. So let's talk about some of the, other, I'm going to go out of order, which makes me a bad podcast host, but I want to talk about <laughs> some of the, uh, some of the other orgs that are doing similar or even related work to Leadership Columbus. Can you talk a little bit about what other orgs are doing the type of work you're doing here in Ohio? Yeah, they're all over the place, actually. Um, And they're all called, they have the same naming convention. So in Worthington, they call it Leadership Worthington. In Reynoldsburg, they call it Leadership Reynoldsburg, and so on and so forth. So they do similar things as our signature program, but it's focused on just that community. And so if you go through, if you live in Dublin, and let's say you want to be really civically engaged in Dublin, you might go through Leadership Dublin. Um, We don't, in our signature program, we don't dive into the specific neighborhoods that are outside of the city of Columbus, but we do dive into Columbus neighborhoods within our program. So there are other leadership organizations doing what we do, 
But a lot of people ask me, well, is that a competition? It's like, well, I don't really see it as a competition because if you're wanting to be really civically engaged in one of those communities, then that's what you're going to go seek, right? You're, you know, whereas if you want to be more involved within the city of Columbus, you might choose our signature program. So I don't necessarily know if I see that as a competition. Also, just generally speaking, I really feel like with what do we have now? Two million folks in the metro area of Columbus that includes the surrounding suburbs, there are plenty of people to engage in all of our programs. Like we don't really have to see it as a competition, but those are similarly situated programs. They tend to be smaller programs and not all of them, but many of them run out of their local chambers as did Mm -hmm. our program up until 2012. Got it. Okay. Um, Yeah. And to your point, right? Like what issues facing Dublin or Worthington or Westerville, pick your pick your suburb, are going to be different than issues that you would learn about trying to get more civically engaged in Columbus, right? So I totally agree. Like there may be some carryover or uh, some overlap, but for the most part, I would assume that you're focused on totally different issues. Yeah. So for example, just so the listeners can understand, so in the signature program, the one program I'm referring to as a comparison to these neighborhood programs. The design of that is it it runs like a school year and there's a program day once a month for 10 months and it's an all day program day and it focuses on a specific area. For example, one day might be the history of Columbus. So that's an immersive experience for the participants to visit certain neighborhoods in Columbus and to learn about like, what was it? how did we get to where we are today, let's say in the King Lincoln district or in Linden or in German village, et cetera. These are all Columbus neighborhoods. So leadership Reynoldsburg might have something like that too, but it's going to be focused on Reynoldsburg. So even though the big picture idea might be the same between all of these programs, the content is very specific to that area. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right, let's talk about some of the challenges facing Columbus today and then how specifically you guys are working to build curriculum and programming around trying to solve those problems. What, what are some of the biggest issues facing Columbus today? The loaded well, Yeah, there's so much. And I was trying to think, like, where would I want to go with this? Um, I, I, wanted, I do want to relate this to our mission because I think one challenge that Columbus is faced with, as well as many other communities, you know, we're not unique in this respect, is finding talent that has both the skill set and the emotional intelligence to lead. Mm -hmm. Both of these are skills and only some companies are willing or feel comfortable or are able to invest in that skills development. Um, This is not an indictment against those companies that don't do it. It's just a recognition that not every company has either enough of budget, has enough time, capacity, the internal know-how to really run a program of their own, which is why a community-based program like ours can be very useful. And sometimes they don't have the budget. So that becomes a challenge for those companies to really get their employees prepared for leadership. What? 20 leaders in the company, relatively small company, only about two of them actually know what they're doing as a leader unless they've been trained and it is a skill that you can felt. And so what happens is, is we get folks doing a job really well. We put them into leadership 
And then not only do they struggle, but the people that work for them are struggling. And then this can lead to turnover, lack of engagement, lowered morale, et cetera. And so that's why building those skills is so important for companies. And the reason why I see this as a challenge is because there's this huge influx of not just younger people in the workforce, but there is a huge power shift taking place in Columbus. It has been taking place over the last decade where I'll call it the old guard. And I'm not referring to, I don't mean that in ages sense, but, um, but rather the more experienced leaders are retiring, they're bringing in their succession plan, they're exiting their organizations, or they're taking a different role so that they can train others. And with that comes a lot of knowledge of the community, knowledge of relationships in the community that are so vast and have so much depth that that is hard to replicate with just training someone to do your job now. Like if I'm a CEO and I'm training someone to do my job as a CEO, it's a whole other ball of wax, as they say, to also make sure that that new CEO coming in is fully engaged in the community, has all these deep relationships. Like that takes years to build. Mm -hmm. Doesn't just happen by saying, here, you need to meet, you know, Paul O'Connor over at Bessa. That's, that takes years to meet all those people and to develop that depth of relationship. And so I don't know that leadership development is the single answer to that, but I do think it is a part of that because those skills, those relationship building skills, those interpersonal skills, the knowledge of the community, especially as we get more and more people coming in from out of town, that is going to be so important. And my fear is if we don't invest in that, that we're going to have a new influx of leadership that is not necessarily as passionate about our local community as they are about the success of their companies. And I believe it takes both of those things. You know, when I think of folks like a uh, a person always comes to mind is Dale Haydloff. Dale Haydloff mm -hmm. used to be in charge of philanthropy and corporate communication for AEP. And mm -hmm. now the fantastic Janelle Coleman runs all of the philanthropy for AEP. I think someone else does the communication piece. You've got Dale Haydloff who had all of these amazing relationships. A lot of people don't know Dale Haydloff is largely responsible for what we see now at the Scioto Mile. A lot of people don't know that. And the relationships that Dale had, probably still has, and the connections that Dale was able to make for people, including myself, all of that is just changed now. And that's not a fault of anyone at AEP. That's just the way it is when you have someone with such deep roots in the community and you have a shift, like that takes years to build up again in new leadership. And so I think that all of that speaks to the abilities of these leaders, both the outgoing leaders and the incoming leaders to make sure that they transition around all of the parts of their job, not just the technical aspects of their job. So there's a lot I want to get back to on that, but I'm going to start <laughs> with when a company, if, if originally I had this faced around, you know, the youth, but I think it can be universal. It can be anyone. If you're at a company, that for whatever the reason either doesn't provide or doesn't have the resources to provide leadership training or even manager training, right? Hey, you got promoted and now you have to take this internal manager course that we've developed. If you don't have that, what's your recommendation for people? Where do they go? What do they do? There, are, Believe it or not, there are a lot of free leadership development resources out there. And you'd think I wouldn't want to share this because <laughs> it might seem like competition, but I one time, just for the heck of it, Googled free leadership development and even like 
Cornell University, Stanford, some of like the big names out there, they offer some free e-learning courses that people can take advantage of that are really good. LinkedIn, um, some of it's great, some of it's not so great, but you can find a lot of great e-learning courses on LinkedIn that can help folks with that. Now, the thing that you're missing when you do that, of course, I'm a big fan, if at all possible, to have a cohort experience, to learn with other people and to do it in person because there is a gap between the the knowing and the doing, right? I, I was just talking to some folks at OSU and they were talking about, um, oh, I'm going to mess this up, but uh, this this gentleman that has expertise in like physics and he talks about the difference between, I'm getting, I'm getting my notes from my meeting out because I don't want to uh, sound like an ignorant fool when I talk about this because it was really, it was a really important point that they brought up um, when you look at it from a scientific aspect. So Potential energy and kinetic energy, right? Mm-hmm. Potential energy is like I sit in a, like if you take this out of the science um, construct and just think about this in terms of leadership, potential energy is me sitting in a room and learning about a thing, whether it's a mm-hmm. virtual learning or even in a group experience. Kinetic energy, things change when you employ kinetic energy, right? When we start doing, what do we encounter? We encounter uh, all kinds of roadblocks. Um, And those roadblocks can come from lots of different places. They can be maybe our own past experiences. It could even be trauma, right? We experience roadblocks based on maybe someone's intersections, right? There could be structures in place that limit someone's ability to take that potential energy that what they learned and to implement it because maybe there are systemic issues in place that prevent them from fully enacting what they've learned. And so to me, that gap is helping people navigate when I learn this thing and then I go to implement it and I feel like I'm failing and it's not working, how do we help people navigating that so that they keep trying and they keep going? Um, to me, that is a nuance that is really lost in those environments, but it is so much better than having nothing, than doing nothing. So I would never discourage anyone from taking advantage of those free resources just because they don't have an opportunity um, to be in a group setting. But the caution I would give would be, do those things, but then as you implement them, understand that learning is not uh, going to be linear, right? You're not just going to learn and up and to the right where mm-hmm. you've learned it. Now you've achieved it, right? You're going to learn something. You're going to try it. Then you're going to be aware of what you didn't know. You're going to fail a little bit. You're going to get frustrated. All that's a part of the learning process. So I think that's really important for us to remember when we look at these free resources and yeah. to really embrace the fact that there's going to be that gap between the potential and the kinetic where we might hit some roadblocks, but we need to keep going. So that's a really interesting point that I want to stay on for a little bit. Like leadership is, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot yeah. of different people. And there is now, if you, I mean, good Lord, I don't even know how many Google hits would come back if you said leadership book. There's a million, right? And so- Oh, Yeah. How how important for like your industry is it to attempt to get towards like an agreeable starting point for what leadership is? Because I imagine if I took your program or if I went to Stanf and name it, right? If I did anything other any other program, it's probably different. And so that's not bad or good. It's just What's the best moving forward to train the 26-year-old, 28-year-old who just got promoted for the first time and now has to be a leader and isn't sure 
well, is this book the right way? Do I have one-on-ones every week? Do I have them what, like, what, where do we go with that? How do we have like a standard if we can? Well, I'm going to think about, I'm going to talk about that in two ways. One is going to be like a big, broad concept. Um, and I'll start there. So that big, broad concept is I really believe that the world has been on a trajectory of moving away from what I'll just summarize as traditional leadership. Yeah. Traditional leadership is top down, is power yes. over because I said so, I'm mm-hmm. the boss, um, I outrank you, that kind of thing. And it is largely um, you know, influenced by, and it was necessary at a certain point in our history when we moved into the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was influenced by the need to have hierarchy and to produce a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. Our schools, unfortunately, have not caught up to the fact that this doesn't work anymore and are, are largely organized around this same Um, industrial revolution concept of seats and rows, and we Mm -hmm. do things in a certain order and there's a pecking order, et cetera. Um, I'm making a broad generalization, but I think you kind of get the gist here. So I think the move is kind of to turn that upside down. And um, I call it servant leadership. Some people might call it people first leadership. I've also heard it called uh, OSU calls it a principled leadership, which I love that. I love that term because um, mm-hmm. some people have a problem with the term servant and servant leadership. Um, but the bottom line is I think in in general, in companies all over the place, there is a move towards that. And I think in general, that is a good thing. And in a sense, I guess you could say we've kind of agreed on that as a, as a general concept, even though there are individuals who still operate from that because I said so power over kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Now, with that being said, um, I do think that, you know, that power over kind of switching to more of a collaborative, a coaching, a servant leadership aspect is also yet another skill set. Like at the end of the day, even though I'm very collaborative with my team, if there's a decision that has to be made and I'm the one that has to make it. I have to make the decision, right? But it's in the how. To me, the how is what makes the difference. So I can make that decision from a coaching standpoint by explaining my rationale to the team, including them in that explanation and letting them know why I wasn't able to involve them in it and why it had to be made quickly, even if I still had to be more autocratic or more um, traditional in my style. That rationale giving, that engagement with the folks that work for you really kind of bakes in that servant leadership aspect to it. It says, you know, I care about you as people first. So I'm going to take a minute and explain to you why I did it the way I did, even though I wasn't able to involve you in it, because let's face it, there isn't enough time in the day to involve everyone we work with in every decision that we make. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, but if our motivation or our come from is because I'm the boss in my way. Yeah. That's a different tenor than this is something I need to do because of time or because it's a decision only I can make. And I explain the rationale to people because I care about them. That's a totally different come from, Yep. even though the action might look very, very similar. Now, the other part of that, you, you asked, you know, can we agree on something or wouldn't that be important? And that would be nice, <laughs> but what I'm finding more than anything, Paul, is I'm hearing lots of different takes on 
what we need to be good leaders. But what I'm finding is that so much of it is the same. We're all saying the same thing, but we're just kind of calling it different things. That's good. You know, like that example that I was given today in my meeting, potential energy to kinetic energy. This gentleman was just using a scientific example of how I would explain the difference between, you know, head knowledge and active knowledge. And the way I would refer to like developmental steps, the way people develop, because people are still developing as adults. We're still learning new skills as, as adults. And so that's not, while using that, um, that naming potential to kinetic was new to me. And I thought it was really useful to me. It's just another creative way of describing something that I've heard lots of times. And so in that sense, it's not novel, but it is helpful because you might be able to reach a new audience by using a scientific term. So I'm seeing a lot of these great concepts that are very people focused and people are just using different naming conventions to describe a lot of the same things. And that's very encouraging to me. Yep. Yeah. Book smart. When you said it, I thought book smart, street smart. Like yeah, exactly. The world versus like lived experience. Like it, we're all saying the same thing. Yes. Uh, okay. So you mentioned servant leadership. Let's talk about uh, your book. You're an author. Um, yes. I always, I, <laughs> what I always like to ask, we've, we've had um, a couple guests on the podcast that have written books. What, is actual, and I mean actual, step one in writing a book. Like, <laughs> cutting the windows, are you writing? Are you typing? Do you just start randomly and let it grow? Do you start chapter one, first word? What is step one? That's part one question. And then I want to get into like what motivated you to actually write it. So that's actually a great question. People ask me about the book all the time, but no one ever asks me about the process, which actually is very interesting because I put off writing a book because the process seemed very um, insurmountable to me. It seemed very overwhelming. In fact, once I was done and published, I was like, I don't even care if I sell one copy. (laughs) I'm just so proud that I got that stupid thing done. Like I was just so glad. But I will tell you that I was really thinking about, okay, you know, in, in the book, Atomic Habits, it says you fail to the level of your systems, I think is what it, something along yes. those lines. I'm, I probably butchered that quote, but something along those lines. I have the book here. I could look it up if you need it. But so I thought I need a system and I need a system that works within the regular rhythm of my life mm-hmm. and that is kind of like in the flow of who Shannon is already, mm-hmm. rather than trying to implement a system that's it, that works against my personality, my, my style, et cetera. So for me, what that looked like was creating um, appointments. That's where I started. So I put appointments on my calendar because I live by my calendar and I keep my appointments unless something gets in the way. So, but for the most part, if I had on my calendar that said that I was going to spend two hours on X for the book, then I set aside that time. And that's what I was doing for those two hours. So that's the first thing I did is I scheduled out my tasks. Then I thought, okay, well, you know, and I got some advice on this. I thought about all the things I wanted to write about and I got index cards. I don't think I have them with me. I thought I had it at my desk, but I don't, but I I got one of these, um, 
oh, I know we're not going to have video, but it's a, it's basically a, a, a book of ruled index cards that are on a, um, a spiral. Oh yeah. Nice. That's okay. Nice. And what I did was I just flipped through and I wrote one idea on each card and they're yep. perforated. So when I was done, I, I ripped them all out and I put all the similar ideas together. Mm. And from that, I came up with 10 chapters, like big ideas. So from yep. that, I was like, okay, I've got roughly 10 or 12 ideas here that are, are loosely related. Obviously they need to be tightened up significantly. And I wrote chapter titles. I started there. Then when it came time for writing, I started with an outline of what I wanted to say about that chapter. Mm -hmm. And then I recorded myself talking about it. Ah, that's interesting. And then this is a, the practical step. I had it transcribed. I paid to have it transcribed and use that transcription as a starting point. Because for me, one of the things I've noticed about myself, again, work with your, the things that you enjoy that, um, that you already know work well for you. And for me, I would much rather edit than create from scratch. Mm. Now I was creating this from scratch, but I was like having a conversation with a friend, just like we're talking about leadership concepts. Right. But I would just talk to myself on a voice note and I would just go on and on and on. Now the downside of transcription is it doesn't always pick up on like punctuation. So that was kind of annoying, but yeah. it still was a huge time saver. Send the transcription to myself. And then I would just start typing. And that's how I got my first rough draft. And it was not a great rough draft. Hmm. Um, I got it to a much better rough draft. And then I hired an, um, a book editor hmm. and that book editor helped me really hone in on my ideas, helped me find areas that were redundant in the book and I still think the book needs a lot more work, but I finally just had to like, okay, I'm done. Um, yeah. But, uh, and I've grown since then. And so I look back at the book and I'm like, oh, I would probably, I think about this differently now. So I might do a, an edited version someday, but, uh, but that was the process in a nutshell, like get my ideas, put them together into chapters, start recording voice notes and then transcribe them to work on that first rough draft. And then the structure I built around that was I made appointments for each of those things. Mm -hmm. So I was like, like an appointment might say uh, voice note chapter two. Mm -hmm. That was my, what I would say. And I knew what that meant. And I would block out an hour or two to do that one day. And it took me almost a year to get it all done because, you mm -hmm. know, I was working full time as I am now. Yep. And um, I got it done during the early part of the pandemic. So it wasn't the best time to launch a book. <laughs> So, um, but anyway, yeah, that was the process in a nutshell. It's uh, so I'm a huge stand-up comedy fan and Jerry Seinfeld has a book and it's fantastic. Um, but he talks about, you know, he wrote, he writes everything, doesn't have a, you know, he's old school or whatever, but he also was doing it in the eighties. So, you know, he doesn't really have a computer like we do now, but he has the, the yellow pad and it's the mm -hmm. exact same thing you said. He said, I wrote an hour a day for 30 years. That's how I became Jerry Seinfeld. And he says, like, and I, I wanted to ask you about this too. Like, I, I'm i going to make an assumption, of, uh, a guess here. Probably not every day was great. Probably not every day was super productive. Probably not every day yeah. you, you crushed it, right? And he talks about that. He goes, sometimes I would sit there for an hour and not write a damn word. I didn't write a yeah. thing. And he goes, but it's the practice. It's knowing that. I am here to write. If I don't write, well, that's sometimes it is. 
But then I, the next day I'll write four pages and I'll have a whole new set, five minute set to go practice. And so how important is it to just show up and just do oh. it, right? Like, it's so important. And it's, and we underestimate, I mean, I underestimate it in myself, um, doing the, the, the practice of doing the thing to me is even more important than the outcome. And I, and I think that's, there's like a greater lesson in there mm-hmm. for all of us, which is if we are white knuckling the result and you can apply this to just about anything, then, and, and you're focused on the end result. First of all, for me, at least, that's overwhelming, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm constantly thinking about, oh, it's got to be good. It's got to be good. I've got to get this result. If I can suspend that tension for a while and just focus on the step in front of me, which is yeah. to do some recording or to do a little bit of editing editing today. You know, there were some times where I spent a month editing one chapter and going back and forth with the editor on things because it was so um, in depth, right? I think that the act of showing up, you are absolutely right. I 100% agree with that, that showing up, keeping your, and this is one of the ways I think you can, it's actually a step of self-care, keeping your appointments with yourself. Like I've you gotten really good at keeping, yeah, I've made a promise to myself that I'm going to show up and I'm going to do this today. So, so let's get it done. You know, I just made it another task. And yes, there were days where I sat there and I was like, I'm not enjoying this. I'm really can't wait for this to be over. And then other days I just felt like I was on fire that like, you couldn't tell me anything. I just had all the ideas and those are wonderful times of inspiration. I would say that was 25% of the time. 75% of it was a slog. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> so, even there's, there's, book out there. <laughs> that's just your yeah, be ready. <laughs> and, and you said it at the beginning, there's a really good um, Kobe Bryant video where he talks about the reason Kobe Bryant was who he was. There's probably a long list, but one of the main reasons was because he loved the process. He loved Mm -hmm. it. He was obsessed with working out. He was obsessed with getting better. Yes, absolutely. He wanted to win an NBA championship every single year. Absolutely. But being obsessed with the process got him five. That's pretty freaking good. And he says in one of the videos um, that I'm mentioning he goes to, and, and you said almost word for word, he goes, keeping your promise. He goes, this was already negotiated. I already told myself that I would do this in the off season. So there's no, there's nothing, there's nothing to talk yeah. about. I set out a plan. I have to execute and do right. And there's another video. I'm just keep mentioning these videos. Hopefully they'll add these in here, but there's a, um, a Georgia tech football coach, some random video that went viral a couple of years ago. And he's talking about just the concept of success. And he goes, you know, success is never guaranteed. But if you do not commit to the process, then you will guarantee you'll never get it, right? If you commit to the process, you have a shot. You have a shot. Doesn't mean you're going to be successful. Doesn't mean you're going to win the game. But you're always chasing. And without that commitment, then what what do we have, right? We we have nothing. Um, Okay. So let's talk about... You mentioned the changes in, you know, that old school <laughs> leadership of top down and, you know, do as I say and because I said so type things, which I also think is changing in parenting. And that's probably probably good. True. Um, but what does leadership look like? What is the most some of the most important traits for a leader to have in 2023 and beyond, um, in your opinion? Oh, man, I I could talk about this all day. 
I think one of the most important ones um, is that they are self-aware. Mm. Now, awareness is just the beginning because I can be aware that I'm a total jerk. And <laughs> that being a jerk. <laughs> do, doesn't make me any less of a jerk, right? Yeah. But Eckhart Tolle wrote a, an amazing book called The Power of Now. A lot of people have heard about it. And he actually doesn't think we're we actually create any kind of change. Change doesn't really occur in and of itself, but rather our awareness grows. And by being more aware that through that awareness, change is created, that we think we have to force change. Whereas he says, we need to create more awareness in ourselves. And Mm -hmm. I have found that to be true more than often. And, And it does start with awareness. But I think the second step is once I'm aware of something, and, and let's just say I'm aware of a gap in my the way I'm showing up. You know, maybe I've gotten feedback, let's say, as a leader. And and I'll use myself as an example. My very first leadership experience, I was an elementary school principal, 28 years of age, I was not prepared. And I decided, you know, because I thought this is what good leaders did, I asked the teachers to evaluate me at the end of the year. And um, it was good feedback, but there was some negative feedback. And one of them was that... Um, that I was aloof and and unapproachable. And what was interesting was that didn't match my inner experience because I really cared about the teachers, but, and and the temptation from a leadership perspective or really anybody, you don't have to be a leader to feel this way, but the temptation is to resist and to reject feedback that doesn't align with our inner experience. Mm -hmm. But we need to pause and be willing to take that in and say, wait a second, even though I'm something on the inside is not translating to the outside. So there was the gap for me. So now that I had this awareness that the way I was showing up made the teachers, some teachers feel like I wasn't approachable, that I was aloof, et cetera, caused me to want to learn more about myself, number one, but also to change my behavior because that wasn't the environment I wanted to create. Now, you could react with, well, that's stupid. That's their problem. That's a you problem. Yeah. This is why I, I tell the participants of our um, of our early manager program, it's called NextGen, and we help folks with zero to five years get ready for or to be better managers in that first management role. I, I tell them, and I said, this is a hard truth. I said, but you need to really think long and hard before you become a leader because to me, there are so many things about leadership that are on the surface unfair. And one of those unfair things, or one of those things that are challenging to navigate is that you do not get to just show up however you want and act like it doesn't have a greater effect on people than if you were coworkers. Mm-hmm. It, it has an exponential effect on people that work for you because of the power dynamic. And you have to be aware of this. And that awareness should cause you to like check your behavior in a way that sometimes has to cause you to stretch to places that are not your natural tendency. So back to my example, what that meant for me, you know, I'm very introverted. I like spending most of my time with me, myself and I, like I'm totally comfortable being alone. I, um, I love solitude. Um, I also really love people. I'm really enjoying our conversation. I, I love engaging with people. And so sometimes um, I will be alone in my thoughts, but around people, 
And that can come across as being aloof or not present or not engaged. Mm -hmm. And so once I realized that about myself, I had to be intentional about my exterior presence. Be more aware of when I was going inward in social situations so that I could be more engaging and be more um, like present in that, in that space with that person or with my team. That's a stretch for me. It's not a stretch because I don't want to do it. It's a stretch because it's not my natural tendency. Yeah. My natural tendency is to go within. And, you know, networking events, not my thing. It's also a requirement of my job. So <laughs> that's that's also like a stretch for me, right? Yep. And so anytime we're stretching, just think about physical fitness. Anytime we're stretching, there's a little bit of discomfort there, isn't there? We don't want it to be painful. If we stretch to we're in pain, like don't do that. Um, but we, the stretch should feel a little uncomfortable so that we can what? Expand our flexibility. And so leaders are constantly needing to flex mm -hmm. and to stretch their capabilities in order to meet people where they are. It is a mistake for leaders to expect people to meet them where they are. Yep. That's another part of leadership that might seem unfair. It's my job and my responsibility to meet you where you are. And I don't mean that as a dat, like a talking down thing. Like I've got to come down to you. I don't mean it like that. Mm -hmm. But what I mean is like, if I, I have a very highly collaborative team, and they really value collaboration and they need me to be present to collaborate with them on a frequent basis. So I'm stretching to meet them there, whereas I'm more independent. Mm -hmm. And so we, we all have to stretch a little bit to kind of allow for that in each other. So I think that awareness is really tantamount to anything else. Being aware of those things, how you're showing up, what is it like to be on the other side of you? And then figuring out, is that working? Is it getting me the results that I want as a leader? Because some people will show up in a space and be like, well, this is how I am. Just deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the problem with that is if you're not getting the results you want and you're not willing to look at your part in that, you're going to be frustrated a lot of the time. Like we have to take responsibility for the emotional environments that we create in mm -hmm. workplaces. So I would say that's the first thing. Um, I think another thing that leaders of today really need to embrace is um, equity and inclusion and belonging. Yep. And we've seen a wave of this ever since the, um, the tragedy of, uh, and the murder of George Floyd. I think there was a, a, an awakening that quite honestly has happened much too late for many white folks. Yep. However, it, it has happened and here we are. And so, you know, you saw companies bring on entire DEI departments, right? And hire consultants and everything. And many of those companies are still forging ahead with that. Mm -hmm. But now there's some fear around this. There's, there's fear around, um, you know, certain groups that see this as a threat and um, uh, institutions might not be allowed to uh, teach certain things or to require certain trainings that would benefit. And, and, I think you would agree, Paul, just, I'm, I'm just guessing based on who you work for. Um, I, I would be, I would guess that you agree that whenever we consider the needs in our companies of the folks that have the most intersections and the most marginalization, that it actually benefits everybody. It, it, it lifts everybody when we think about that, you know, and when we accommodate that. 
And I think the same thing happens in communities. That is a skill that can be developed. You know, anti-racism, DEI, learning how to create more belonging. All of those things are skills that we can learn, but there needs to be an awareness. We need to move from unaware to aware. Mm -hmm. And then we need to move from aware to being active. And then we need to move from being active to being advocates. By the way, that's a training that we do. (laughs) We train people. We have a training called uh, Courageous Inclusion that teaches people that process. But, But it is so important that that leaders embody that. And here's why I say that. And I apologize for the long-winded answer, but I'm so passionate about this. We need to move beyond the trappings of DEI. We need to move beyond, well, I've got my DEI person and the vast majority of DEI professionals are still white cisgendered uh, women. Um, That needs to shift. But when I say trappings, what I mean is We've got the trainings. We've got, you know, all the things. I want us to keep doing that. But I want to see more leaders do the work in here, in their hearts, and to dismantle the systems of oppression that are existing inside of themselves that they are unaware of so that they can do less and less harm in the way that they lead. Because I can provide all these trainings. That's a good step. I can provide all of, um, I can empower my DEI leader to create this change. But if from the top, if as a CEO in my senior leadership team, if we are not actively working on our own anti-racism journey in our own efforts around equity and inclusion, it will be felt and seen. We're already seeing a shift where now that there are some economic concerns, what are the department's? these organizations are getting rid of. They're they're literally obliterating entire DEI departments. They're getting rid of this spend on leadership development. They see these things as a nice to have, not as a must have. And that is something that I think needs to to change. There are plenty of companies that are not doing that. I want to acknowledge that there are plenty of companies that are doubling down on it and are saying, no, this is the way to go and kudos to them. But that is a skill that needs to be developed and, and honed beyond just the trappings, but really like the heart change. What do I need to do to change? Especially if I am a white leader, I I need to really do the work because we are all victim of white supremacy. I don't care what you look like, where you're from. It affects everybody. And we need to dismantle our policies, procedures, the healthcare that we provide. All of these things are influenced by white supremacy. And we need to really evaluate them on a systemic level in our businesses so that we can begin to un- undo some of those influences so that we create permanently these welcoming environments that cause, that create more equity and belonging in the workplace. Well done. Uh, I have a lot of follow ups. <laughs> One is the three words, like, and you mentioned the course. I wrote down exposure, understanding, change. I, if I, if I had to try, this is an impossible thing to do. If I had to try to explain why there are issues or or any problem in the world, my answer would be a, it's due to lack of exposure. People mm-hmm. are not exposed to a community, a neighborhood, a, a, a person, um, a, whatever it is. Which then leads to what? A lack of understanding, which then leads to, mm, 
that's over there. That's not a me problem. That's them. I'm not dealing with it, whatever. And then the walls go up and then the change doesn't happen. And so the three words that while you were saying them, I was like, yeah, that's worse. Again, it goes back to like, we're saying the same thing. This is where my brain went. Like it's because of a lack of exposure. So you don't get it. So you don't feel because you haven't been affected. There's no empathy. Yeah. You don't, I don't, what do you mean? I don't, I, I don't have to change whatever. So I, I wanted to mention that part then. Um, all the way back to what you said around receiving feedback. First of all, kudos to you for being a 28 year old who could accept feedback, but I don't know if you listen to Mark Huberman's podcast at all. Um, yes. but um, yeah, so I'm just getting through, I'm like two podcasts behind. I haven't listened to Tony Hawk, but Dr. Maya Shankar, the one about shaping identity Ooh. and goals. She, they, they had a really good part about feedback for people that struggle with it. And they said, listen, it's our natural reaction to put our guards up when we receive negative feedback. You can't change that. Here's what you could do. Instead of try, instead of internalizing it, view it as the view yourself as the third person. And so you, mm-hmm. it, I really love that because it was like, you're kind of removing yourself from the situation. So you can attempt to look at it with an objective lens, right? Like, Ooh, let me, okay. And that's hard to do to look at it as a third person. But I thought that that, I just, that's what came to my mind when you brought that up. And then uh, the last thing I wanted to talk through was about how you show up as a leader. Again, I'm going to go back. I'm a big basketball fan. I always go back to sports. Um, But there's a, there's a coach K at Duke speech around people say coach K's superpower was he never had a day off. He showed up the same, never had a day off. And there's a, there's a speech that he says, I got that from my mother because she, uh, her, her, his father, I believe, was a hotel oper- elevator operator, and his mother cleaned the hotels. And so she showed up the same way every day, was positive every day, no matter what. And his quote is, be as tough as your mother's. I've never seen my mother have a bad day, right? And I love that quote. I'm like, I don't know if I know anyone tougher than my mom. And, and so, but that's leadership, right? Is that fair to moms? Hell no. I'm sure there's so many. I can't imagine. There's so many days that it's like, oh my God, I'm going to. Paul, I'm going to kill you. Please go away. Right. But be as tough as your mother's. And I think that's, that's leadership, right? If you're ready for it or not, you, you, you have more responsibility. So in leadership, I think there is a lot of benefit to like showing up every day, being consistent um, and, and being tough in the sense that, you know, we recognize and accept that leadership is hard. And sometimes it is a, sometimes it is a drag, you know, because there's lots of things you have to do that are not necessarily like, oh, I'm, you know, like I'm not passionate about sitting down and reviewing our financials every month, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. not something that wakes me up in the morning, but I am passionate about what that knowledge can create for the organization. And that the lack of ignorance on my part around those financials is super important and can help create good decisions for the organization. So I try to focus on that. And there's a lot of rigor. So we focus less on excellence and getting things perfect. And we focus more on rigor on the process. What I was trying to allude to before that was, I think there needs to be a tenderness also in leadership where we balance or we have more harmony with the toughness and the tenderheartedness that we give people room to make mistakes that work for us. And I have sort of like this 90, 10 
rule. Um, and it's not cut and dried, but you know, for example, in the performance metrics of our staff, nothing in there is you have to do X performance metric at 100%. Everything is 90%. Mm -hmm. Because there's always going to be human error. It helps me keep my expectations in check, right? And it also lets them know, it communicates that this is a safe place to try something and to fail at it. And nothing bad is going to happen to you. You know, you're not going to be put in a situation where, and given some kind of metric where if it's not 100%, it's a total failure. And to me, that speaks to a softness of leadership that says, you know, I understand that we are all, myself included, learning and growing. And in that learning and growing, I need room for error. And I think some of traditional leadership, even though that is shifting, I think there's still a lot of leadership that is very perfection oriented and, you know, focused on the way we appear. And if we're right on, to, you know, I once had someone tell me if you're not 10 minutes early or you're late and just stuff like that is just rooted in a lot of um, tradition that mm -hmm. isn't necessarily helpful or even true. And so yeah. I like to always, cause I definitely tend to err on the side of task. Like I will be very task focused. So I have to really remind myself to come back to tenderness. Um, yeah. Not because I'm mean or, or difficult with the staff, but because I can be so focused on getting stuff done that I can forget that there's people involved here. <laughs> and, you know, I need to focus on people first. So I yeah. just think there needs to be more of a harmony there between um, being tough and tender. hundred percent. Shannon, this has been fantastic. We're going to get you out with our, uh, our rapid fire questions. So okay. uh, as, as fast as you can answer, uh, go for it. And then, um, and then we'll wrap it up, but okay. First rapid fire question. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice I ever received. And the reason why I think it's the best is because I say it to myself probably every day, which is this. Does it need to be said? Does it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said by me right now? Mm. And that has stopped me from saying hurtful <laughs> things, ignorant things, um, ill-timed things on more times than I care to admit. <laughs> I love that. That's good. I haven't heard that before. What uh -huh. is the worst piece of advice you've ever received? Interestingly enough, it came from the same person oh. <laughs> as the first one. Um, I was, I'd gone to um, this person who was my boss at the time. This was a long, long time ago. And I was upset because my counterpart um, kept dropping balls and I was constantly having to um, cover for him. And I went to my supervisor and said, you know, this is really frustrating. I don't know how to navigate this. I was very young and I, and I wasn't trying to throw him under the bus, but I was just saying, you know, how do I navigate the fact that I'm picking up these things that if they don't get done, it's going to harm the organization. And he's, and instead of helping me navigate that, what he said was, well, it's not so bad being the hero. And the, the Shannon of today, when I look back on that advice, you know, at the time I was like, oh yeah, they'll see me as like this hero and like that I can do all these things, but it really led to a lot of unhealth for me professionally. Yeah. I developed this thing where I was always, I was like, I was over overworking. I was doing too much. And mm -hmm. what it actually did was that it enabled people to not do their jobs. And I yep. had to really work many years to undo that because for the longest time I was trying to be the hero. And I realized 
if you're constantly being the hero, it doesn't enable other people to do their job and to make their mistakes and to get corrected and to grow. And so I had to undo that. 100%. Besides your own, what is your favorite book? <laughs> um, I would say it changes over time, but I think right now my favorite book is All About Love by Bell Hooks. Oh, nice. Okay. And then <laughs> last one, actually second to last one, who inspires you? Um, it's going to be a group of people. And I'm not saying this because they work for me. They, it's really true that it's the staff at Leadership Columbus. Like, it is such an amazing group. They're a dream team. Um, we are all facing both visible and invisible challenges. Mm -hmm. And to have a team where you're aware of a lot of those challenges and to see all that they're accomplishing, especially when I realize how much change I have asked them to create in the last two years, um, it is admirable. So they inspire me every single day. I love it. Okay. Free, uh, free press for Columbus restaurant. What's your go-to rest your, uh, oh my gosh. So, whatever you want. I, I am so basic when it comes to restaurants. <laughs> I, I wish I could tell you it was these, you know, obscure places that you visit on restaurant week, but for a great anytime meal, it's kitchen social, oh, um, yeah. For a fancy meal, Jeff Ruby, my birthday's coming up. I'm going to ask my husband, I said, I want to go to Jeff Ruby. Um, I love, though, everything at, I think it's called the East Market um, oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and Bud Dairy. Anything at either of those places, I just love all of them. I love the experience of being there, um, of having lots of different choices. Um, that's just very inviting to me. I love that. I love it. Awesome. Well, Shannon, thank you so much again for coming on. This was a great conversation and uh, I look forward to seeing you out in the community uh, at some point in the next couple of weeks or months. And uh, yeah, we'll talk with you soon. Good luck with everything this year. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.